0: KFI AM uh, 640, Bill Handel here on a Thursday morning, February 23rd. And some of the top stories we are uh, covering, well, the snow is the snow is coming to Southern California. Uh, also, and we're going to do that in uh, just a minute, uh, but uh, the NTSB is set to release a preliminary report on the Ohio train derailment. I've never seen a report come out in a couple of weeks like this. Usually the NTSB waits months before a preliminary report and then uh, 18 months before the final report. So let's talk about the weather for a moment and what is going on. We can't control the weather, but we can certainly control what the weather does to us. And so, uh, and this is sort of a weird topic to talk about uh, on uh, the eve of uh, probably one of the worst storms that have come into Southern California. As a matter of fact, the entire West Coast that is gonna go across the country, uh, for the first time since I can remember, although they're telling us 1989 this happened, is the National Weather Service has issued a blizzard warning for Southern California. Blizzard. Wow. Snow all the way down to maybe a thousand feet. I mean, most of us live at a thousand feet or more here in Southern California, above sea level. And so are we really going to get snow? Yeah, it looks that way. And more importantly, a lot of rain. A lot of rain and wind I mean it's going to be brutal but with all this water that's coming in and we've had a very wet winter so far does that mean uh the drought is over not even close I know it is uh kind of bizarre to talk about the drought when all of this uh weather is uh, coming down in such uh, with such magnitude but no, we we literally have to do to, to deal with it because I, I and actually here's why and we have to talk about this and think about it because when it comes to drought we don't care uh, when it comes to uh, you know uh, uh, amelioration when it comes to mitigation when it comes to lowering our use of water you know during that I mean you, are you really going to not pay attention to taking short showers when you're looking outside and the rain's coming down uh, in torrents like you've never seen. And not just Torrance, all the cities around Torrance, too. Did that work? Yes. So we are still, even with this, in the middle of this huge, massive drought. And the problem is that, as I've been speaking or talking to you, I think a couple days ago I did a story, is that we here in Southern California have to make such massive changes because we're still in the worst drought period. I mean, this is what climate change is about. The drought keeps on going uh rains will come but see the rains dissipate because one of our problems is we don't retain two, we we don't retain the uh water and so we don't have a good system of keeping that water so that's our bad by the way there's not a whole lot we can do about the sun uh, i mean the sun's out there and it's hard to mitigate against the sun i mean you can uh you can make more green areas can take away the asphalt so why is it now why is it so crazy now? And why haven't we done anything? Because we didn't have to. We didn't have to. I mean, I came to the United States in the 50s. Nobody cared. There was plenty of water. I mean, there were plenty of lawns. Uh, there were a fewer number of people, of course, by a long shot. And it wasn't a big deal. So we developed a system that didn't pay attention to it. Our drainage system, drainage, goes right out to the ocean. You know, when uh, it's a heavy rain, you look at the Los Angeles River and you look at uh, how quickly the water is rushing down to the ocean and then you see all those rescues uh, over the bridges because the water is moving at 45, 50, 60 miles an hour. That all goes to hell in a handbasket. We didn't need to deal with it. And by the way, prior to, I think, World War II, basically nobody lived here. And you know what you did for a front yard? It was dirt. That's what it was. It was just a bunch of dirt. And so we're caught in the middle of it. We cannot think that this, uh, that this is over. The worst drought in 1,200 years interspersed with heat spells going longer, interspersed <clears throat> with rains and interspersed with inclement weather like we're having. And I think what we have to remember, and I I have to make this, uh, also I have to remember, because I'm going to be looking at the water coming down, that this is just another indication that when it gets hot, it's going to get hotter. And when it gets hot, it's going to get hotter for a longer period of time. Welcome to Southern California.
1: Chris Little, our news director, just drove in from Rancho Cucamonga, and he said it was snowing, not, not snow sticking. But yeah, just, snow on the windshield. Just dusting. I love it. A light it. dust of snow. Yeah, that's so special. I'm calling in snow tomorrow. Oh, yeah. I Can't s- come in. It's snowing. Me Somewhere. too. Somewhere. Oh, you too, Tyler? Yep. Yeah. Handle? Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Three maybe. Musketeers, yeah. it with yeah. us.
0: Yeah, maybe. You know, I, I'll tell you what. Let's uh, talk to Robin. This is a good time for Mo to pitch his show. His show. Have him come in tomorrow uh, and do the show.
2: I will say that <laughs> Teslas, from what I've heard, Teslas do not do well in the snow. So oh, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, genuinely be careful.
0: Uh, we'll find out. Ooh, okay, guys. Wow. Now, uh, I want to do a story about the midlife, uh, midlife crisis. It came out of Bloomberg, and I looked at this. And I went, "Wow." I mean, this is just terrific. First of all, uh, midlife crises are done differently amongst different generations. For example, Jennifer. Who just went through a midlife crisis, <laughs> Jennifer, who is no longer with her husband, Jennifer, who bought a sports car, Jennifer, <laughs> who uh, bought another house, Jennifer, who is now dating and having a wild time with Pedro, the 18-year-old pool wow. boy, wow. And, wow. and and she has no pool, and she
1: has a pool boy. It was going so well until Pedro. <laughs> Thanks, Handel.
0: That's quite all right. And then uh, people of my generation, and I've never had a midlife crisis. I don't know why. But, uh, you know, what do you do when you hit your 40s, 50s, and you're a professional lawyer, doctor, whatever? You dump the wife. You end up with the, the girlfriend. If you're Jewish, you have the shiksa goddess of love. Uh, blonde hair, you know, legs up to the armpits. Uh, and you buy a sports car, right, and you have to really glue that toupee on because you're driving on the (laughs) freeway at 70 miles an hour in your convertible. I mean, it's just done differently. And uh, now, 2023, 3.6 million Americans are turning 40. And I'll tell you what they're going to do. They're going to freak out. Now, this will be the third batch of millennials uh, to hit this milestone. Uh, but this group, we're not gonna, they're not going to rebel like their parents did, who in their 40s and 50s bought, like you, bought the flashy boats and cars and hooked up with Pedro. Uh, <laughs> they aren't divorcing their spouse, this one. You know why? These millennials don't, because they don't have a spouse. So there's no one to divorce. They're not going to get a tattoo, and you know why? They already have tattoos. They're tatted up, up and down their arms and legs. So. It's going to do it's going to be a different midlife crisis. and you know why? Because they can't afford to have your normal wonderful midlife crisis like you do, Jen. And so there's a report came out in 2019 uh, that people born from 1981 to 1996 earned 20% less than baby boomers did at their peak. I'm a boomer and certainly uh, I have more money than my daughters will ever have. And why is that? Because I've worked since I've been 13 years old. And uh, my daughters, uh, the only thing they really do is reach for my credit card and go, Dad, uh, do you mind? I'm going shopping. Thank you very much. Uh, Data from uh, the Federal Reserve say that the the assets of this new millennial group, 162,000. Gen Xers, 198,000. It's going south. How come? Well, the big deal was the dot-com bust. In two, and the 2008 financial crisis, that shaped early working years. And I, how many times have we talked about those people who are behind, and uh, particularly during the pandemic, kids going to school, for example, and losing a full year. It's not they've just lost a full year. They've lost a full year for the rest of their lives. People that I went to law school with, and one got a job, uh, let's say someone took a year off. Even if you take a gap year, which I think is a horrible idea for your future, your income, you know, people get a job, let's say, a year later in a law firm. They're always a year ahead of uh, the, the the people who started earlier, always a year ahead, which means throughout their entire career. That's what happened. That's one of the reasons that happens. National Bureau of uh, Economic Research People experience a seventy percent uh, of their overall wage growth during the first decade of working. That's the most critical time, and that's when the that's when these millennials hitting their midlife crisis. That's what affected them. So you have the two thousand eight, uh, the two thousand eight uh, financial crisis. Uh, you had um, the uh, dot com bust, and guess what? That was the early years of their working lives. They got screwed. Wow! Well, turns out that if uh, your working life, if the first years of your working life coincide with a major economic down uh, downturn, long term, you're uh, it's going to cost you nine percent of your income. Wow! It's huge.
1: But that makes sense because if other generations didn't have to deal with whatever economic downturn happened. Of course, they're going to be able to save more, spend more, right. buy more. Exactly, and these yep. guys start at a deficit.
0: You bet. They're earning, uh, saving. They're earning less, saving less. Mm-hmm. Uh, all con- and, and on top of that, look at the crap that people are buying. They're spending more than they were relative to what we spent, and why? Well, did you ever buy? I'll tell you what I never bought is I never bought supplements. I never bought ginkgo bilboa or <laughs> ginkgo dildo or whatever the wow. hell that is.
1: Wow, wow.
0: <laughs> you know, I just don't buy that stuff. Oh, yeah, and the penis creams. Wow. Let's not forget those. Bigger, better. Let me tell you something. It's a fraud. I've tried every one of those. None of them work. Little TMI, uh, maybe a little TMI. But the point is, do you know that uh, the all kidding aside, the wellness and self care industry is now four trillion dollars a year around the world. I mean, what's all this about? Let me tell you something. You're not going to get thinner. You're not going to get smarter. Your joints aren't going to do better with
1: this stuff. And yet, that that's what we're getting constantly. You know, subscription stuff. So subscriptions to spas where you get a massage a month yeah, well, and you get le- a break on it. Or you get yeah, facials that's, and that's you get a legitimate. break on it.
0: That's legitimate.
1: But that's, I've noticed that's a trend.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, but at least you get a, uh, it's one of those things where you get a massage.
1: Not just some supplement. No, does not nothing. just some
0: supplement. I, I got to tell you, to me, those supplements are snake oil. And the difference is between them and snake oil, they do about the same. With snake oil, you end up with snake oil. You actually get snake oil. You don't get much on the other side because you've swallowed it and it's done. So uh, the midlife crisis, the, the, the midlife crisis as we know it is already over the hump. It turns 58 years this year. It's 58 years old.
1: Wow. The concept
0: of the midlife crisis And research started that, by the way, 58 years ago. And it had an instant impact. Books, TV coverage, government task force. And man, uh, right around that time, the social upheaval made you divorce your wife or divorce your husband, Jen. uh, Marry a uh, younger woman uh, or a younger man. Uh, Jen, not that you're going to get married, but Pedro is a few years younger than you are. And marrying a younger woman is not frowned upon as it was then. There was something wrong with you if you uh, went out and married a younger woman. Now no one cares. Pedro?
1: Oh, my God. There is no Pedro.
0: Okay, yeah. Just for the record. Yeah, that's what you say. Call her at her house. (laughs) See?
1: Stop it. There is no Pedro.
0: You want to talk to Ms. Mar- uh, Ms. Jennifer? Okay, we're done. Shush. All right, we're done. No, enough, enough making fun of you. Oh my God. Uh, okay, that's enough. Well, uh, you know what? Let me go on and talk about a uh, really, well, I guess a fun segment, if you can talk about overturning Roe v. Wade being fun. So uh, you have the Dodd decision, which overturns Roe v. Wade, right? We all know what happened. And uh, all of a sudden, it's wide open. Uh, because fetuses or fetus fetici, or fetus uh, under the law were basically not people. Certainly in the first trimester, they really weren't people. And then you go to second, third trimester, it depends, the state interests in not performing an abortion. But there was no issue. That was not a child. Well, that concept is done. Now, under state law, the state can say, it is a child. Out of that comes a lawsuit in Florida, and there's this woman, Natalia Harrell, who uh, was arrested in July, uh, accused of fatally shooting another woman, and she's sitting there charged with second degree murder, no bond, and she is pregnant. Was pregnant. Uh, this now she is seriously pregnant. I think seven, eight months into her pregnancy, and she was put in a van to be transferred to another facility, 100 degrees inside the van. Uh, county uh, jail employee only opened the door after hearing her bang against the wall. She's been there without bond since July. She was six weeks pregnant at that time. Now, obviously, she's a lot more. So what does her attorney do? Her attorney uh, writes a petition for a writ of habeas corpus, Habeas Corpus is uh, technically bringing the body to court. In other words, you're holding someone illegally. And now we're in front of the court and arguing whether someone should be held illegally. So the attorney is not arguing that she is being held illegally because it's legitimate. She was arrested. She was arrested for second-degree murder. She's in jail without bond. You can't attack that. However. You can argue that that unborn child is being held illegally, incarcerated. And therefore, she should be released because if the child cannot be held, it's kind of hard to take a child who is in utero, in the womb, out of the womb. So guess who gets to go along? Mom. Now, that is kind of an interesting argument, isn't it? Where uh, the uh, attorney is saying the unborn child is innocent and should be discharged from jail and to receive proper care because the argument is she's getting no care in prison at all. And that's an argument that happens a lot, and there's a whole constitutional issue there where judges over and over and over again say prisoners have to be treated well, and which they're not. So that part is legitimate. I think the argument would be, that my client is not being treated well, she's pregnant, therefore, under the law, you have to treat her well. No, no, the whole issue is that unborn child is being held illegally. And guess what? Uh, You now have uh, this unborn child is a person under Florida law. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, Now, uh, the motion uh, to dismiss his petition Uh, was in fact uh, argued, and the the court did bounce it, but for technical reasons, not the underlying real reason. Does Number one, is this a child under Florida law? Yes, and Roe v. Wade is gone. And number two, is the child being incarcerated? Who the hell knows? And should the child, uh, the fetus or the baby be removed, uh, be uh, let out, and therefore you have to let Norris out? Who the hell knows? Uh, It's just a fascinating case and just a real quick one. There was a similar case here in California, uh, much more fun than this, and that is a woman got tagged in the HOV lane and uh, she pleaded not guilty because she said, I am pregnant, I have a child in my womb, therefore there are two of us that are in the car and we're allowed to be in the HOV lane and the court's, Basically, I I think it was a one-word decision. Two words. Ah, come on. That was
1: it. Just a wild case. I've always wanted to do that with the dogs, especially (laughs) when I've got like three of them in the car. What are you talking about? We're a full car here. Yeah,
0: yeah, for sure. Now, uh, Steve Gregory uh, does a weekly report with us, and a lot of his crime-solving, and when he does uh, Unsolve, for example— A lot of the solving is done with um, uh, familial DNA Uh, because of Ancestry and me or 23andme and Ancestry.com that people go to, the authorities have been able to tag uh, semen or blood or sweat uh, on clothing from cases 30 years ago that they couldn't do anything with and unless someone's in the database, even with DNA that came out, unless you have a match, doesn't happen. Well, using uh, familial DNA, this is, I mean, the science is just terrific. What they do is not match to the suspect himself or herself. What they do is they match to a family member. Chances are some family member has gone on to one of these databases. Ancestry and me, um, uh, what's the other one I just said? Uh, uh, my mind just went. But anyway, there's, there's several of them out there. And they're available, especially to the police, even if there happens to be a, a warrant out there. And some some are more difficult to get into than others. But the point is, here's what happens. So the actual suspect, of course, uh, there, there's no match. We know that. But let's say there's a cousin who's a match. So they contact the cousin. And then they start investigating backwards. Who do you have out there? Do you have anybody who is of this age? Do you have anybody who lived in this area? Uh, Is there anybody who was squirrely? Is there anybody that has in your family that has a conviction? Uh, And then they just winnow it down and they get hold of their suspect. And some big surprises. And here's one that sort of took everybody for a loop. There is a French horn player, or there was. His name, Elliot Higgins. Uh, In the 1970s, he launched the first French horn solo competition in America. There wasn't one before that. He conducted the Albuquerque Philharmonic, started an annual French horn workshop. During the summers, he was teaching uh, aspiring players at his family's music camp. And I mean, this guy was a world-renowned French horn player. And he died in 2014. He was uh, 73 years old, and the obituaries uh, came in like crazy. He was revered. Not so much anymore, but he was revered. So the police in Alabama, specifically in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, were looking for a a cold case. And all of a sudden, uh, DNA evidence comes up showing through the investigation, having a family member who went onto one of these genealogical websites, and they were able to do the reverse investigation. And all of a sudden, it turns out that Mr. Higgins uh, was a serial rapist with a trail of crimes across the country. And according to the police, they said uh, this evidence, this DNA evidence, linked him to at least three unsolved violent sexual accounts of, of women, crime, assaults of women. Uh, crimes that investigators in Alabama and Colorado have been shrinking out for decades became a cold case, of course. But now they're going back to the cold cases. Steve talks about that all the time. There is now a division within the Sheriff's Department, that's the one he's closest to, L.A. County Sheriff's, but uh, it's the Santa Ana Police, uh, it's Orange County Sheriff. I mean, everybody has one of these if uh, you have a uh, police force of reasonable size. And also, uh, what uh, is going on is you have a lot of retired detectives who worked on some of these cases that were unsolved are coming back and are either being paid part-time or doing it as volunteers to try to figure out who these guys, usually guys are, have committed these horrific crimes. Now, uh, Higgins' daughter, Amber, said she was in total disbelief when the investigator said, we got him. Here's our evidence. Now, obviously, since he died uh, years ago, I mean, they're not going to do anything about it other than the case becomes closed. And Amber Higgins, the daughter, said she was filled with rage and sadness and humiliation And actually wanted to help law enforcement uh, to make sure the victims might have some closure. No one in his world is defending this. Oh, it couldn't have been him. Oh, no, he was a wonderful human being. All the evidence is not true. Oh, no, they got him. I mean, his world knows they have not only the family, but the entire French horn world. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I've never been in or around the French horn world. That's just that simple. I don't have a French horn. I've never had a French horn. Oh, I'm looking at a picture of him. Very smiling guy with, strangely enough, a French horn in his lap. Just an aside, having been in marching band, uh, and and I played the trumpet. It was horrible, by the way. I was so god-awful. They wouldn't let me play. I'm not kidding you either. I was in the Birmingham High School marching band, and I was one of about four players, five players who were so bad. The band director said, don't play. Just march around because we want to fill you. uh, We want to make the band look bigger. That is not an exaggeration. So anyway, uh, the French horn happens to be probably the most difficult horn instrument to play. It is damn hard to play it. And he was a world-class player. Amber Higgins says, as my father, he was a loving, devoted, seemed to be kind, morally upstanding I've been trying to wrap my mind around this. Is it possible that he could have had this other person hidden inside of him? Yeah. Another French horn player, well noted, said, we were duped by a master manipulator and liar. Uh, He's a board member of the International Horn Competition of America. Higgins founded it. Uh, Wow. So... Just what a wild story. By the way, the earliest crime that connects the DNA evidence to Higgins was 1991 in Tuscaloosa. And it was uh, a University of Alabama student. He forced her into her car, a knife at her throat, and raped her. And that seemed to be his M.O. A decade later, same thing. uh, Tuscaloosa real estate agent uh, gets a call to show a house. He takes out a knife and rapes her. And in every case, even though they couldn't tag exactly who it was, the picture was the same. And uh, just uh, you know what? We ought to actually put that up. Uh, We'll put that up on the website. And what you'll see is this cherubic, bald, slightly overweight, benign-looking guy. Very avuncular, uh, meaning uh, very uncle-like. It's like your favorite uncle, and he turns out to be this god-awful serial rapist. Wow. By the way, the uh, technology that allowed DNA to be matched when they started doing familiar DNA was 2004. Okay. Uh, so we're going to see a lot more of these cases, these cold cases. And the what makes them so interesting is they are so outlier cases that no one even thinks this could happen, like Higgins, Mr. Frenchhorn. Now, uh, it's time for Jason Middleton uh, with our financial segment. And we do this... Yes, do we do this every... uh, Yes, we do. We do this every Thursday now. Yeah, that's our regular. And Jason is heard Sundays, 2 to 3 p.m., and he's also an anchor here. Good morning, Jason. Good morning, Bill. And also, we have to take a picture of uh, Jason because Jason looks like a Santa's elf. Oh, come on. And it's Christmas time. Oh, Jennifer's coming in, and uh, you'll see a... uh, uh, so not a green Santa's elf. No, it, uh, no. It's more, uh, it's gold. I, yeah, it's a gold Santa's elf. Gold, goldish. Yeah. Anyway, so
2: it's very pricey.
0: Jennifer, tell me doesn't look like an elf. Kind of does. Kind of
2: does. It's okay. It's Do elves wear Givenchy? Uh, it's a Givenchy
0: so. elf hat. All right. Let's go forward. One of the things we talk about, and I'm, I'm doing spots for a couple of, uh, advertisers. When we talk about the value of homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, have decreased. Either they're flat or they're going down, and they're going down. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, the value of, 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 of what's going on across the country and here in California.
2: Put our housing market together across the country, $47.7 trillion of value just six months ago. And now we've lost $2.3 trillion. It's down 5%. Now- I heard earlier in your show, you mentioned the 2008 financial crisis as kind of an economic benchmark, especially mm-hmm. when you're saving and, and building your, uh, your early, uh, salaries. Um, that housing, the housing market right now is lower than that. So the good news is as far as like, it's sinking looks like we're at the bottom. Uh, we might be in a bit of a of a trough, as they say. Of course, this is this time of year when houses don't sell so much. But wait, wait, wait. The, we're in a trough, and it looks like well, – is, is this it, the low point? It's not going to well, drop anymore? I, I called a buddy at Compass. Um, he's an analyst there, and he seems to think – I think that Compass is going to take – they're a, a, a multi-state um, conglomeration of real estate, commercial and residential. And they seem to think that we are kind of bottoming out right now. Eyes are on the Fed when it comes to interest rates. That's going to tamp demand, of course. So we'll see how that goes, but with their next rate hike next month, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. But the housing market right now, uh, it's still, it's still, it still looks rough. I looked at Fannie Mae this morning to think about what they, what they saw too. They expect it's only a matter of time. This is a quote, only a matter of time until the economy enters a recession, and they see a soft landing as uh, unlikely. So that's, that's a big okay. portion of our economy is the housing market.
0: Okay, so if uh, we go into a full-blown recession, then it's fair to say uh, the price of housing will drop dramatically.
2: Sure, because demand All will right. drop too. And here is uh,
0: – I want to throw something at you. Uh, they're making a big deal of uh, the fact that home prices have dropped 5% from their high. Right. They were increasing by 20% a year mm-hmm. during the heyday, and so – the, I, the way I looked at it, and I've been looking. I've owned a house for you know forever, and I've sold uh, and moved up the way people do. Right. You know, you buy a house sure. and you sell it, and you buy a, you know a, a it's better the house. Basis
2: of American wealth for the right. middle and
0: class. Right. And I've done that since my late twenties, early thirties. So right. I've been doing it for a while, and it's uh, it, it, where am I going with this? Uh, yeah. The the rise in the value of the house over the last few years and housing has to be so aberrational, such an outlier, that we're never going to see that again. And the other side of it, we'll never see a drop uh, in those numbers again.
2: Yeah. Isn't it funny how inflation always seems to go up really quick and then comes down really slow? (laughs) And some of that is just uh, somebody taking something out of the middle. But this is not that case. And I think that you're right. David Foster Wallace tells this great joke. uh, "Two Two young fish roll up on an old fish and the old fish says, hey, how's the water? And the two fish go, eh, you know, whatever, and they fish. They swim on. One of the younger fishes looks at the other fish and says, "What the hell is water?" So we were so used to having twenty percent accruals and appreciations on our homes. This is the probably the new normal. We're getting new normalized. These interest rates that we have right now, and I seem to think that the the ceiling for the Fed is going to be closer to six percent. As a base rate, uh, I think that that's going to be in effect. It might come back down maybe next year to about 4 4.5%, but I do think the new normal is what, kind of what we're looking at now. This is the tip of the spear. This is the disruption that comes with renormalizing, right? And once we get everything balanced out, I, I think that those heydays, as you like to say, are, are, are definitely in the past but they're not over necessarily because the suburbs are still doing better than cities. And some of this has to do with remote work too. People are staying in their houses longer because uh, remote work is being okayed by a lot of employers.
0: All right. So, uh, well, we'll talk about the feds in just a moment, but really quickly, uh, uh, interest rates right now for a mortgage, 30 years fixed. And what's going to happen six months from now?
2: It's about 6.3% on average right now. Of course, there is a There are a panoply of options when it comes to mortgages, but just as a ballpark, 6.3%. That's going to have to go up a little bit as the Fed raises its base rate. So the question is, is it going to go at 0.25% next month or 0.5% next
0: month? And people uh, are are stunned, I mean, paying 6% uh, interest. That is a normal interest rate yeah. for housing. That yeah.
2: is traditionally what people pay. Right. Well, we were crawling out of things uh, after the 2008, uh, we started crawling out and then COVID happened. And then, so we had a lot right. of disruptions, a lot of black swans.
0: Yeah. And we're 20 we're years black swans. and 20 years of 3% money, uh, which is, you're right. We just get so used to it. We think that's the norm.
2: It's like my grandmother says it was good while it lasted. Yeah. And it was good while it lasted. It's a new normal.
0: So, uh, let's talk about California, and California, in terms of the amount of money that it owes or surplus or deficits, and keeping in mind that California is the fifth largest economy on the planet. Mm-hmm. It is uh, among uh, – well, you put them in, yeah, the top five economies yeah. and countries it in the world. It changes
2: places with Brazil every once in a while.
0: Yeah, I mean it's just completely crazy. So uh, – I. California now. Uh, let's talk about the unpaid, the paid bills. I know a couple of years ago we were in a surplus of twenty-five or thirty billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to be in a deficit. Yeah, but uh, not too bad. Okay, so let, let's talk about that and what's going on with our bills.
2: Well, okay. Let's 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 once again, California is number one. We are number one in household debt for the ten biggest states in the country, but we're also the best at paying them off. So we have the fewest delinquent debts, at least. Uh, that's going on right now. So the, our unpaid bills are pretty much really low. We're paying our bills here in California. Uh, some of that, I mean, it's it's hard to say uh, why at all. It's nascent uh, as it goes through, but at the same time, we're thinking about we have a retail economy that's very strong. We have certain industries that are basically moats around our economy, including entertainment, which is a big industry, and that's that's a moat because that's worldwide, and so that kind of helps things keep even. So people are getting paid. People have their incomes. I do think that the mixed work, uh, working from home kind of situation has helped a little bit too. Uh, We're lowering some of our transportation costs and some of our daily cost of living. And that goes back to our bills every month. It's overall, it's not not too bad. Now, the slowdown, of course, is hitting everybody in some way or another. It's not a full-blown recession yet. So people are still consuming. You saw that in the retail numbers this week. I think that we are insulated to an extent. Once it hits us, though, it's hit everybody already.
0: It, uh, the question about California and uh, the deficit up and down and the amount of borrowing that we do on bonds, for example, you always buy governmental bonds, uh, both uh, county bonds and city bonds mm-hmm. and utility bonds and state bonds. Uh, relative to other states, how are we in terms of how much we owe our debt, California debt, not deficit? Uh, and if you don't know, that's that's fine. I'm fine. I don't have that it's one. You. Uh,
2: yeah, I don't have that one in front of me. Uh, I, just anecdotally speaking, from the last thing I remember reading, which was probably December, uh, we are in the top ten percent of st- well, we're the top five states when it comes to outstanding debt because we grow. You, it's it's a risk reward situation. What's the ROI on rolling out those bonds? Infrastructure. It's keeping everything hmm. moving on time, and so that that seems to me that that shows a sign of growth. That's not that's not a risky bet, obviously. I mean, it's a bond. Right. So we're not exactly risk on. Well, you're borrowing. I mean, We're borrowing the money. Yeah. But- we, we, yeah. But, but with with a with a proven management plan to spend it. Now, there are some things on the ancillaries that we can get into. That's a political thing. Right. But, but the policy in California has shown that borrowing at the present rate that we have been for the last 10 years is sustainable and leads to growth.
0: OK. Where you have the federal government, of course, that is I mean. They can borrow and Look, they can spend, and we are now at a 31 or $32 trillion national debt. And I remember when it hit $20 billion when uh, I think it was the, the last year of uh, the Obama administration, and it was beyond comprehension how we could hit a trillion trillion debt. That's impossible. It's now a 32
2: Right. Now, the Fed numbers I can talk about because I'm prepping for my show this weekend. We have a $2.3 trillion deficit this year. Our overall deficit, to your point, is 100% of GDP. That math doesn't work. Talk about not sustainable. It's unsustainable. It's not sustainable whatsoever. $2.3 trillion deficit going into this year. And just this morning, we heard that if we default on our debt... Everything we borrow is going to get more expensive because our credit rating is going to go down.
0: Yeah, I mean, are we ever going to be Argentina that effectively goes bankrupt and simply defaults and says too bad and it takes 10 years for anybody to loan Argentina money again? No, no,
2: no, because we're the world's base currency and as long as we keep that tab that's our that's our break glass thing right so if we ever lose being the the baseline let's say the the euro takes over the dollar as far as the basis for world economy then we might have to face some different consequences right now no now granted that's that's way down the line we just have to keep things moving so we keep our aa rating when it comes to credit so we can borrow money at the lowest possible level
0: and uh it's what's a lot of people don't know and i always found fascinating for example, Moody's comes out, one of the rating uh, organizations, and they'll rate your business. For example, uh, they rate governments. Yeah, I mean nations. They'll they'll rate the United States of America as to the quality of its borrowing, the the, the bonds. You have a triple A, triple A plus rating, right? right. Uh, junk rating, which, or they'll give you a, 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 what is the lowest rating?
2: Junk rating? It's a junk, yeah. And then there's a whole market of cesspool that happens around that. But during the Obama years, we did lose our plus rating, remember, because of the, uh, the annual deficit thing that we're going through right now as far as our spending and the borrowing goes. That is going to, according to Janet Yellen this morning, is going to last us through July, so we've got to fix that. If we don't, we lose that plus rating and maybe more, and then our cost of lending goes up, which just adds to the deficit, and we're back into this self-fulfilling prophecy.
0: Crazy. All right. Uh, one quick one, Target. Uh, investing a hundred million dollars in uh, speed up uh, to speed up delivery and what what is that story
2: uh, I don't know they just noticed that amazon does okay for business I mean they need the physical facilities to be able to deliver stuff it's very 80s thinking in a way that like the J- Japanese were the uh, if you don't buy it until you need it you don't warehouse until you, it's 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 quick delivery kind of system it's going to that it's to respond to amazon's contracting that they have with everybody to help them compete with getting it to your doorstep. That's basically it. It's long overdue. They have the money on the bottom line right now to do this investment. The ROI on that's fine. You won't see any shake on their share, share price, I don't think, because investors see it as a strong investment.
0: Now, so are people going to be able, is this going to, well, let me put it this way. Is this going to be a uh, really a hit on Amazon? I mean, we're going to see some competition here.
2: No, I don't think so. This is, this is, a, this is a hurry up and catch uh, kind of situation with Amazon. When it comes to the warehousing, when it comes to deliveries. Now, if they do something innovative when it comes to, like, uh, automated or robotic deliveries kind of thing, maybe, maybe drone deliveries. Maybe they can jump ahead like that, kind of like Bing is doing in a different way with Google and the AI search. Like, some can, something innovative can help them leapfrog if Target can come up with that, but I've not seen any reporting on that yet. All right.
0: Uh, Sundays, 2 to 3 p.m., uh, Jason Middleton, also you hear him as an anchor Uh, various uh, parts of the day here. Jason, thank you, and uh, have a good one. We'll catch you this weekend on Sunday and, of course, uh, next Thursday for our normal segment. All right, take care, everybody. This is KFI AM 640 Live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app.